This is on your way home. Have you ever felt like something bad was about to happen? Like that sneaking sense you get before it happens that something bad is going to happen. Like, oh boy, here we go. You ever had one of those moments? Nikki had one of those moments on Tuesday of this week. We went down into the kitchen and we started our morning routine and she started dropping things for no reason. And she said to me, oh no, it's going to be one of those kind of days. You know what I'm talking about? You ever have those kind of days where one thing leads to another? You drop a dish at breakfast and next thing you know you're getting pulled over by the police for doing 57 and a 50. Right? One of those kind of days. I can usually see those days coming, and when I sense that it's going to be one of those kind of days, I deliberately slow down, and I'm not just talking about my driving. I deliberately slow down. I deliberately do everything a little bit more lentement so that I can see the trouble coming because I just have a feeling like it's going to be one of those kind of days. You had days like those? Maybe you've experienced weeks of trouble. You can't really pinpoint the reason why, but... Things just aren't going well. And one bad day leads to another bad day, leads to another bad day, and before you know it, it's been a really tough month. Sometimes, God help us, that turns into a difficult season. Maybe you've had a difficult season in life. I think back on my life together with Nicole, and I think about fall 1999. That was a tough season. I think about summer 2007. That was really difficult. I think about winter 2010. I remember that as a difficult season. One of the most difficult we've ever been through. Bad days turn to bad weeks. Sometimes they turn into bad seasons. You can sense that things are about to get ugly and there's nothing you can do about it. You ever felt that way? Like you sense the momentum turning and you're helpless to stop it. This happens a lot in sports. I know I've been told that sometimes when I start talking about football, I lose some of you. But I've also been told that I gain some of you. So what's a preacher to do? Just be honest and tell the truth. So I'm a football coach, and for many years I have experienced in almost every game that moment when you begin to sense it turning away from you. Something happens, maybe it's a bad play, maybe it's a bad call, but you can literally feel the temperature of your team change. Have you experienced that? This happens in relationships too, right? Maybe you're in a relationship and you can sense something happens and the temperature begins to change. This is really tough if you're married, right? Because you're like, I'm married, there's no way out. So i got to figure out how to navigate this storm and find our way through to calmer waters. But you can sense it. You ever felt that? You're like, whoa, something's taking a turn for the worse here. This can happen at work. If you own a business, you know that you'll just feel it. You have one irate customer call you and you're like, This starts a cascading series of events, and before you know it, you're three months down the road into a difficult season. The shift in momentum, the downward spiral, that sense of impending doom. I say all this and emphasize it in the way in which I have to be able to say this. That's exactly how the generation leading up to the birth of Jesus would have been feeling. You see, the Romans conquered Jerusalem in 63 B.C., We know that they invaded Syria, which is north of modern-day Israel, several years earlier. Most scholars think about five to seven years earlier. And were working their way south, conquering as they went. And they took Jerusalem in 63 B.C. Now, we know that the birth of Christ occurred somewhere between 3 B.C. and 3 A.D. Somewhere in that six-year window is when Jesus was born. 
So it's not on exactly zero, because we don't even know the time of year for sure. But we know that somewhere between 3 B.C. and 3 A.D., in that six-year window, Jesus was born. So depending on how you slice that, the generation leading up to Jesus' birth would have been living under Roman occupation for 60 years. This gets especially bleak when you think that the average life expectancy was somewhere between late 40s and mid-50s. So if you were a fully grown, mature adult in the time leading up to the birth of Christ, hear me, you would have lived the entirety of your life under Roman occupation. If you were to hear these words, you would know exactly what I'm talking about when I speak of an impending sense of doom. Because that's how the Romans led. You may have been taught that the Romans were fairly lenient when they took over countries and states. This is true in so much as when they took over a state in which the religion was polytheistic, those nation-states generally had no problem adopting emperor worship, which was the dominant form of state-sanctioned worship in the Roman Empire. What it simply meant was, our emperor is so great, we want you to worship him. Because when he dies, he's going to join the gods, and so we want to worship him as a god now. So we're going to give you a nice shiny statue to put in your town, and we'd like you to worship it. Make offerings to it and add him to your prayer list, if you will. So if you happen to live in a polytheistic state, if your life had been organized around that kind of worship, the worship of many gods, it would have been no big deal for you to add one more god. It's like, one more, what's the big deal? Okay. But in Israel, this is a very big problem. Because Israel was this little tiny nation state with this profound history and a deeply embedded monotheistic religion at the core of its national identity. They worshipped one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you conquer that nation, fine. You begin to tell that nation that they have to now begin worshipping the Roman emperor, and that's where push comes to shove, and Israel starts pushing back. This is why Israel was in a constant state of tension, lying uneasily under the Roman yoke. So you need to think of the people who lived leading up to the birth of Christ as people who had lived their entire life basically in a police state. They lived in bad times, and it looked like it was getting worse, and it really was getting worse. We know with the benefit of hindsight that in 70 A.D., Okay, Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father somewhere around 33 to 37 A.D. We're not sure exactly when, but somewhere in that window. And we know for sure, 100%, that the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in Jerusalem and laid waste to the city in 70 A.D., putting down a Jewish revolt. A revolt that had been simmering since the Romans took Israel in 63 B.C., So you have basically 130 years of ongoing tension. Things are bad, and they feel like they're about to get worse. I want you to understand and feel and appreciate the tension that these people would have been living in. Why? So that the next time you find yourself facing what looks to be a bad day, or a bad week, or a series of bad weeks that leads to a bad season, you can remember that you're not alone. 
So if that's you today, if you find yourself living under figurative Roman occupation, this story is for you and it might change your life. And if you're not, if things are okay right now, tuck this away for the next time you find yourself in that situation and then pull this out for your edification. Because the story we're about to see changed Zechariah's life. And of course it ended up changing the world. Here's how we know how. This is the Benedictus. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. Now his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, here it is, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Oh, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the pathways of peace, the Benedictus. As I mentioned, this was probably sung. Zacharias probably sang this the first time he uttered it. You can tell from the content that he's pretty excited. You can tell from the content that he's having a pretty good day. The question, of course, is why? Why is Zechariah so excited? For that, you need a little bit of background. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, we meet Zechariah, the priest, and his wife Elizabeth. He was not the high priest. He was just a priest who worked in the service of the temple. He was well advanced in years, so he was approaching the end of his life. And his wife Elizabeth was barren. They had no children and could not have any children, which to the average Jewish person living at that time was one step removed from being cursed. And it comes time for his grouping of priests to serve God in the temple. It's their time of year. And they drew lots. It was such an honor to be able to serve in the temple that the priests would draw lots to see who got the task of going to serve in the holy place. Most of the service of the temple occurred in the inner court and the outer courts. Okay, very few of the priests ever went into the holy place. And only one priest, the high priest, ever went into the most holy place. And then only once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so the priests drew lots to see who would go to minister before the Lord in the holy place. And the lot fell to Zacharias. Imagine how excited he was. Not only is his group of priests getting to minister before the Lord in the temple, he gets picked to go into the holy place. This may have been the only time in his life that he would have entered into the holy place to minister before the Lord. It probably was. And what did he have to do when he went there? His job was to go in and tend to the lampstand. The lampstand was on one side. There was the table for the showbread. Basically a a very spacious kind of empty place with a curtain at the end beyond which lay the holy of holies which in Solomon's temple would have had the Ark of the Covenant in it. Josephus, the great historian of the Roman Empire, tells us that the Ark of the Covenant never returned from exile, and so the most holy place was empty in the second temple. But nonetheless, the cherubim were there, and nonetheless, the Spirit of the living God would have dwelt there. And can you imagine going in to have a little church for yourself in the holy place? Best day of your life. And it gets better, because he goes in to tend the lampstand, the candle, the menorah, 
And as he approaches it, he sees an angel standing beside it. And of course he freaks out, and the angel says to him, hey man, chill, don't worry. I may be paraphrasing a little bit. He says, look, the Lord has noticed you, he's heard your cry, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You need to call him John. He will be great, and he'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. And John's, uh, Zacharias is like, um, I mean, we drew lots. Maybe like the wrong lot fell because I'm old and my wife is old and she's barren. I love this part. The angel gets ticked off. He says, I am Gabriel. So this is Gabriel. I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Most High God. You're going to tell me how it is? Be quiet. Again, paraphrasing a little bit. Literally be quiet. He says, you will not be able to speak again until your son is born. So Zacharias leaves the temple and he goes home. And I guess he has to write it down to his wife. She's like, why aren't you talking? He's like, well, because you're going to have a baby. She's like, this is the best day of my life. I'm pregnant and my husband can't talk for nine months. Word up. (laughs) He's like, what were you praying for, Elizabeth? Thank you, Jesus, right? It's a peaceful house for nine months. He can't talk. And so the story continues. John is born. He's not named John yet. A boy is born. On the eighth day, they're going to circumcise him. They come to the parents to say, what are we going to name him? And Elizabeth says, his name is John. They're like, come on. You don't have any relatives named John. We should call him Zacharias after his father. This is Junior. She's like, no, no, you call him John. They won't listen to her. So they ask his father. So they go to Zacharias and they say, what, what should we name him? And he writes it down on a writing pad, a stylus, not digital, probably clay or wax. He says, his name is Yohanan. His name is John. And just like that, his tongue is loosed, and this is what he sings. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath visited and redeemed his people. There's two really salient points for you right here off the top. Zacharias is so excited because God is saving him. He's saving he and his wife Elizabeth from the predicament in which they find themselves. The predicament of barrenness, of childlessness. God cares enough about them that he saves them from their predicament. The lesson to you this morning is wonderful. God notices you too. Nothing special about Zacharias. He drew lots. He was so unremarkable that he had to draw lots to get his turn to enter the holy place. And even so, God saw him. Salvation is personal. It's for you. It's for Zacharias. It's for Elizabeth. God will save you from the predicament you find yourself in. Salvation is coming. It's on its way. As Christians, of course, we know that our salvation has been effected by the work of God in Christ at the cross in his resurrection ascension. And we know that one day it will be completed when he returns again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end. The great theologians put it this way. You have been saved from all eternity in the heart of God the Father. You were saved in the work of God the Son, in His incarnation, His sinless life, His death, His resurrection and ascension. And you are being saved as you respond to the call of God the Holy Spirit to walk in that which has been accomplished for you. You have been saved. You were saved. You are being saved. And one day you'll awaken in His likeness. He'll look on you with love and He'll say, Welcome home. Okay, so salvation is for you. 
Second point, it's also for everyone. Ha, hallelujah. Right? Because not only is the angel announcing a prophet who will be born to this barren couple, but he's the prophet of the Most High God who will go before the Lord, the Messiah, to prepare his way. So salvation came for them. Salvation comes for you. Salvation is here for everyone. Here's the point, friends. Everyone needs to hear this. Everyone you know in some way feels like they're living under a police state. Y'all know I'm right? Everyone you know feels this way. Everyone needs this. I mean, our malls are proof of this right now, this time of year especially. I had to go to Canadian Tower yesterday. I was like, oh Lord, help me Jesus to not get grumpy and disillusioned. I had to go out to buy a tong for the fireplace. And, you know, you find a parking spot. Everyone's fighting for the parking spots. And it's just stuff everywhere. Cascading things that are going to end up in our landfills. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, help me not become disillusioned. I look at every face. And every face I saw was set and grumpy looking. Especially when they're coming out of the store to their car. It's Christmas. It should be full of joy, full of peace, full of hope. Full, you know those things we put on the cards? I didn't see any of it. Why? Because all of those good things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, are the fruit of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God fills them that are His. Which means that left to our own devices, we get misery and death. Which is why people are so grumpy when they're at the mall. Because they're like, if I buy one more thing, it might make me happy. And then they buy the one more thing, and they get a little shot of dopamine in their body. Like, yeah, I bought a new sweater. And then they go home, and they're no happier with the new sweater than they were with the old one. They're still living in a police state, whether they're wearing an old sweater or a new one. Think about it. How many happy, carefree, peaceful people do you bump into each week? I'm pretty sure the answer is not many. I met with someone from Grace a couple weeks ago, just for lunch. I said, how you doing? They said to me, I'm great. I said, that is so nice to hear. I said, why are you great? They said, my life is perfect. I was like, your life is perfect? Yeah, I can't complain. I was like, I need to like take this and put it in a spray bottle. You know? So when I wake up grumpy, I give myself a little spray. A little bit of their happiness. Let me get some of that. Right? Isn't it true? Don't you meet like mostly grumpy, upset, stressed out people? Once in a while, you bump into somebody happy. You need to thank God for that person. You need to tell them, I appreciate you. Thank you for smiling. You just made my day. They're a little ray of sunshine. I'm here to remind you this Christmas that you don't got to go on living or feeling like you're under Roman occupation. You don't got to go on living like you're waiting for the axe to fall. You know somebody who's living like that? Like they're just on tender hooks all the time, waiting for... It's like someone stuffed them into a guillotine, and that's their life. Like, oh, no. I mean, that's no way to live. But how many people do you know who live that way? Like they're just waiting for the... The testimony of Scripture, the testimony of Christmas in particular, is you don't got to go on living like that. Why? Because God showed up. God showed up. Look at verses 68. Through 70. 
And say hallelujah in your heart. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Hear it. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Woo. You don't got to live like you're under Roman occupation anymore because God showed up. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Friends, the God of the Bible has come near and he has saved you. Three salient points from verses 68 through 70. One, God exists and he's the God of the Bible. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Back to Jewish monotheism here. Just in case anybody's confused whether we're worshiping the new sweater or the God of the Bible, we're worshiping the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Israel. Look, you're going to deal with a lot of interference as you go throughout life. People suggesting to you that you worship something or someone other than the God of the Bible. They will say to you what the serpent said to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Is Jesus really the way, the truth, and the life? I don't think so. Nobody believes in that kind of exclusivism anymore. Come on, get with the times. Try a little of this on for size. Try a little bit of that on for size. Open up your minds. Remind them that the Archbishop of Canterbury is fond of saying to the graduating theology classes at the University of Cambridge that uh, the purpose of an open mind is to close it on something. God exists and he's the God of the Bible. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second point, he has not left you alone. He has come near. Hallelujah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. God has come near. He has not left you alone. Next time you find yourself feeling alone, tell this to your problems. Quote the opening line of the Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. Say that to the night watches. Say that to your deepest, darkest thoughts and fears. God has not left me alone. Hey, man, Zechariah is prophesying this. Prophesy this to yourself next time you find yourself in trouble. God has not left me alone. I mean, you receive that, that'll change your whole life. God exists, and he's the God of the Bible. He has not left you alone, but he has come near. Third point, to save you. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who has visited and redeemed his people. He came near to save you, which is a beautiful reminder that you need to be saved. (laughs) You live in a culture that is completely leveraged to inoculate you to your need. They give us fancy cars and big houses and climate control and a new wardrobe every season. Like, you ever wondered why the fashion houses change the wardrobe over every season? Like, my spring outfit from 20 years ago works fine. It's still short, so I'm not hot, and a t-shirt, it's good. Right? Like, I'm... Our whole... You know, what you really need is the 2018 Subaru WRX STI. The devil says that to me all the time. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't think the devil's actually talking to me. But the world system is saying, if you want to be happy, what you really need is more stuff. 
And it's giving me all these comforts to inoculate me to my need. Right? So that I don't feel like I need Jesus. I'm good. Look at this new sweater I just bought. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need a thing. Zechariah's prophecy reminds us that we need to be saved. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed. To redeem means to buy back. You need to be saved. I need to be saved. And look, you might be presently on the opposite end of that spectrum. You might be sitting to, sitting to me listening and going, come on now, preacher. You're clearly not connected with where I'm at. Because I feel you right now. I'm under Roman occupation. And this occupation that I'm under, no sweater can help. In fact, this occupation is so strong that I don't even think God can help me. You ever felt that way, like beyond help, like even God can't help you? I've felt that way a few times. This is why God reminds us through Zechariah, his prophesying servant, that he is plenty strong enough. Look at verses 69 through 71. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began. Feel it, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is the best day, if you're a preacher, whenever you see horn of salvation, you know this is one of the power verses. Horn of salvation. This is, this is your chance to flex. This is your chance to get excited. This is your chance to get passionate. This is a chance for you to feel the power and the might of God. Why? Because the horn they're talking about here is like a, literally like a shofar horn. Like the, have you ever seen these? Like the crazy ram's horn trumpets that they would blow in Zion. Like blow a trumpet in Zion. That's what it is. It's the horn. And why the horn? Because the horn represented in those days the strength of the animal. And so if it fell to you to craft the horn that the priest would blow in the temple on the Lord's day, you would find the biggest ram you can, the strongest looking ram you can. And as you killed that thing and cut off its horns and hauled it out and dried it out and polished it and prepared it for the priests, you were doing so because you knew that that horn was meant to represent the strength of God. I'm just saying that in case when you read Horn of Salvation, you don't immediately get jacked up and want to fight. Because that's what happens to me. Because I know that's what it means. Who has raised up for us a horn of salvation. So I hear horn of salvation, I immediately think of the other power passages in the scriptures. Psalm 18 happens to be one of my favorites. Listen to all the power in this passage. Okay? And know that this is the power being deployed to set you free. That's why we're excited about it, right? Not because we love power. We love the power of Jesus that is being deployed to set us free. We love our Savior. Do you love your Savior today? That's why I'm excited. I don't love power. I love the power of my Savior because it's his power that's being deployed to set us free. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. That's a lot of power in one passage. I'm hearing strongholds and rocks and shields and horns and strength. It's the best day of my life. Should be the best day of your life. Friends, why? Because God is plenty strong enough to face whatever ails you. That's powerful. Also, he's been planning this salvation for a very long time. That's why verse 70 says what it says. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. 
This is very encouraging. Why? Because if his holy prophets have been saying and shouting this same thing, and the prophets always shouted, by the way. They were like crazy freaks. You don't want to have a son who's a prophet. You're like, just go into stocks and bonds, because dang. (laughs) They're always crazy, getting in trouble, getting themselves stoned, thrown in prison. It's a bad situation. Right? But if there's been holy prophets since time began saying this same thing, what does this tell you? This tells you that people since time began have needed to hear that God is strong and able to save. This means you're not the first one who's ever found themselves in desperate times. Hallelujah, right? You're not alone. It's not just you. Nothing wrong with you. You're just human. Made in God's image and likeness. Okay, living in a world that's been cursed ever since our first parents ate from that fruit and disobeyed God. We've been suffering the consequences ever since, but God did not leave us alone. But he visited, oh, and redeemed his people. I hardly preach. The incarnation of Christ is just almost too much to take. He's plenty strong enough for whatever ails you, and he's been planning this for a very long time. And get this, his salvation is an everyday kind of salvation. It's not just for the priests and the holy people. It's an everyday kind of salvation. How do I know? Because he promises here in verse 71, take a look, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Nobody hates me. Really? Let's think about it for a second. Nobody hates you. Give people the slightest push and see what fury lies beneath the veneer of Western popular culture. Why is history so full of bloodshed and massacre? Well, because most of the time it occurred during ages of the world when there was no veneer laid over the rage of the human condition. So Russia gets ticked at Serbia, and Austria won't bend the knee, and neither will Serbia, and Russia won't bend the knee either, and Germany's afraid of Russia, and they don't want to have war on two fronts, so they decide they better attack France, who's an ally of Great Britain, and Great Britain won't back down either, because, hey, rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. We're the greatest. We're not going to bow the knee to no one. We're not even going to go to that peace conference. Before you know it, the world is cast into the massacre that was World War I. Why? Because a bunch of proud, angry, hateful people refused to bow to the knee to Jesus, let alone to one another. You read in history books, you're like, we need to educate the masses. Why? So that they can grow up to get good jobs. Why? So they can buy sweaters that will keep them from rising in revolt to cast off their overlords. I mean, the other option is everybody could just come to Jesus. That's the kind of counterculture we're preaching. That's the kind of counterculture we're seeking to live. That's the kind of kingdom we're laying our lives down for. That's the kind of hope we believe in. Because underneath the veneer of Western popular culture lies the rage of the human experience, and it's everywhere. It's just looking for an opportunity to attack. Everyone hates you. You're like, really? Well, think about it this way. Outside of Jesus, 
So if we're not following Jesus, if we're not learning to love, follow, obey, and enjoy Jesus, if we're not learning daily to die to self that we might live to Christ, then what is the other option? If you aren't serving, loving, obeying, learning to enjoy Jesus, who do you love more than anybody else? Right? Yourself. And if you love yourself more than anybody else, all it takes is a push or a shove to cause you to lash out in hatred to anyone who is not yourself. I mean, it's sad but true, but most of the time, the best we can hope for in the fallen West is what's called mutual self-interest. But the problem is the bankers work in their self-interest and the workers work in their self-interest and the agitators work in... You know, you know see how it goes? Because nobody loves anybody. Everybody loves themselves. Except for Jesus. It's just a matter of push coming to shove. And yes, if the story ended there, it would be very depressing. But of course, it doesn't end there because this is the story of Jesus and Jesus is here to change your life. Look at verses 71 through 75. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Here's how Jesus is going to change your life. Look at verse 71. It's going to save you from the hate-filled everyday life that you face day in and day out here in the fallen West. We already talked about that, so I'll move on. He's going to save you from that, from the hand of all who hate you. Verse 72, this is my favorite point from the whole sermon. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenants. To perform the mercy. Literally in the original, to do The mercy promised to our fathers. And yes, it's a present continuous. To be doing the mercy promised to our fathers. Friends, in Jesus, we see mercy that is not a concept, but we see mercy that is an action. Isn't that beautiful? To be doing the mercy promised to our fathers. Jesus is doing that mercy to you. In Jesus, mercy is an action, and He is acting on you. That's how he's going to change your life. He'll also do it by doing what he says in verse 73. He's going to keep his promises. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Contrary to what the world might teach you, God does keep his promises. All your promises are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 God will keep His promises. In fact, in a real mind bender, He is keeping His promises to you even when it doesn't look like it to you. The day will come when you stand in glory at His side. He says to you, welcome home, good job, enter into your rest, and you say, oh, that's what that was about. I'm sorry, I got to... I gotta, I gotta bend the knee. You know, and you gotta check the calendar and find out when the next worship service is before the throne of God and of the Lamb, and you gotta join it. Can you imagine that first one? The first time you walk into the presence of God, the throne and of the Lamb, 
and having for the first time understood what this was all about in the Veil of Tears, get to give voice with a heavenly body, with lungs and vocal cords that I bet you can sound like a pipe organ. And you get to tear it up in the presence of God, joining the living creatures and the saints, singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you'll be good at it because you'll have had some practice because you went to grace. Come on, no. We ain't going to quit till it's like you leave church like breathless like you just preached twice. The worship's so good, you're like, I just touched heaven. Well, why? Is that just a slogan? No, it's not just a slogan. Trying to get you ready. Right? Jesus is here to change your life. And these ways in which he's going to change your life, these are going to turn you into the promise of verse 74. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Literally, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might be unfearly divine servants. You didn't know it today, but you came to church today to find out why you exist. You exist to be a fearless divine servant. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. You exist to be a fearless divine servant. That's why you're on the planet. Regardless of what you do, this is who you are. This is what you are becoming. This is one day who you shall be. I mean, anyone else want to sign up for that? A fearless divine servant. What's your job? I'll work for Jesus. What do you do? I serve him. How is that? The best. Why? Because I have no fear. Really? Yep. How is this possible? I mean, how could I grow up into a fearless, divine servant? Well, because you're in Jesus. I mean, how else would a Christian interpret verse 75? in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. I'll tell you how a Jewish person would interpret verse 75. They would say, okay, we're to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. So we got to work really hard at being holy and work really hard at being righteous. So let's go back and study the Torah and let's make sure we memorize the scripture of the week. Let's make sure we walk out and do it and let's not transgress the Sabbath and let's not eat any of the forbidden things we're not meant to eat, and let's make sure we fulfill the law, every jot and tittle. That's how a Jewish person would read this. We've got to do this in holiness and righteousness. They would see this as a to-do list. You know how a Christian sees this? (laughs) They see this as a promise of something that's already been accomplished for you in Christ. Why? Well, I mentioned it last week. Because Ephesians 2.6 says that we are seated in in Christ, in heavenly places right now. Ask the question this way. Left to my own devices, and please shout at me. Am I holy or righteous? Heck no, right? Y'all know me a little bit by now. Let's turn the tables now. Left to your own devices. Are you holy or righteous? Absolutely not. So what's a woman to do? What's a man to do? Well, work hard is not the answer. Come to Jesus is the answer. Why? Because you're in Christ. If Ephesians 2 is true, you're already seated in Christ to, okay, let's ask the question this way. Is Jesus holy and righteous? 
Absolutely. If you're seated in him in heavenly places right now, you're good. And also, this means that Zacharias was not a false prophet. Huh? Because he's prophesying about Jesus and his effects. That's what he's doing in the Benedictus. Which it turns out is exactly what he was doing. Prophesying about Jesus and his effects. We've just spent 15 minutes exploring Jesus and the effect that he's going to have in our life as we follow him all the days of our life. You see it? It's glorious. It's, it's, it's this exact, well, I'll prove it to you. Look at verses 76 through 79 as we close. And you, child, Zacharias here prophesying to his son John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here we see in verses 76 through 79 both your destiny and your destination. We get this from John's destiny. What was John's destiny? His destiny was to become the prophet of the Most High. What is a prophet? A prophet is one who foretells the glory of God in Christ. That's what a prophet does. Okay, A prophet foretells the glory of God in Christ. This was to be John the Baptist's destiny. We know further from Jesus himself, recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that John the Baptist was the greatest human being who ever lived. Jesus himself says, of those born of women, there is none who has risen greater than this one, John the Baptist. The greatest human being who ever lived. And Jesus goes on to say that the least in the eventual kingdom of heaven will make John the Baptist look like very pale in comparison. So here we see your destiny. You want to aspire to greatness? You want to do something that matters with your life? You want to make your mark? You need to aspire to become like the greatest man who ever lived, a prophet of the Most High, one who foretells the glories of God in Christ. Knowing, as you aspire to that kind of greatness, that ultimately, one day, the kingdom of God and of the Lamb will make all of this seem like nothing in comparison. You want to aspire to greatness? Aspire to become one who foretells the glories of God in Christ. So, with that in mind, say the right thing and go the right way. Worship team, I'm done. Almost. Verses 77 through 78 speak of saying the right thing. To give knowledge, hear it, of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. John was to speak the oracles of God, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. How do we do this today? Next time you bump into somebody with whom you have a relationship, who is feeling like they're living under Roman occupation, and they happen to ask you why. Why is it that I can never seem to find my way free? You need to say to them, in that moment, because you've been invited to speak, you have a sin problem. And they will react, what do you mean I have a sin problem? And you immediately say, look, it's not just you, I have the sin problem too. I have felt throughout my life like I'm living under the threat of the axe, like I'm living under impending doom. But the answer is not try harder to save yourself. The answer is come to Jesus because he has already done it. Jesus is God the Son. He entered into space-time history as a man. That's why we celebrate Christmas. 
He lived a perfect and a sinless life, fully satisfying the will of his father. And in the fullness of time, the Bible says he was hung on a cross between two thieves to suffer and die in your place and mine for our sin. Because he's fully God, he 